Hi, you're listening to Track Changes, the podcast of Postlight, a digital product studio at 101 Fifth Avenue in New York City. I'm Paul Ford. I'm the co-founder of Postlight and the co-host of this very podcast, and I'm joined by my fellow co-founder and co-host, Rich Ziotti. Rich, how you doing? I'm doing very good. You got a little cough. I got a little cough, and it's not, it's weird. It's one of those, it's a scratchy throat, and I get coughing fits. Give the listeners a taste. No, if I start, I won't stop. Okay, so, so you might hear that. You might, you might have a little fun later in the uh, no, podcast. No, Tom where... will edit. Yeah. Tom is our producer, and he will edit it. That's now. right. We can only hope. Uh, Rich, before we talk um, to our guest, who I'm really excited to talk to, what, what, the, what, what, what does Postlight even do? Postlight is a digital product studio, but you could almost call it a digital product and platform studio. Uh, We build and design platforms, and we build and design the products that run on top of them. Uh, Apps, web experiences, mobile apps, internet of things. I just want to say internet of things. You know what it is? There's just lots of transactions at the bottom of the things we do. Yeah. We can't help but open the hood. That's our thing. Yeah, we like to to think about that low level where the database is thousand things are happening in a second. Yes. Things are going on. We actually, I'm going to... Can I continue to plug us? Yeah, plug. We run a service that does nearly 100 million requests a month, and it's free because we're generous people. That's right. It's called Postlight Mercury. It'll turn any web page into a clean, easily readable web page. It and turns it, it into data. It actually powers a lot of the reading views all the way around the internet. Apps and cool. stuff. So if you go to mercury.postlight.com, you can check that out. Enough about us. Yeah, you know, so this this is a big subject we're about to tackle. Um, what What are we even doing today? Well, we're going we're gonna to crack open a puzzle, and we're going to ask ourselves, what does one of the largest investment banks in the world have in common with one of the largest ad platforms in the world have in common with snowboarding in your living room? I'm intrigued. Let's do this. So we like to talk to people from very small businesses who are doing- Cozy. Cozy little tiny companies, yeah. which is why today- we, we were, I was walking by this little- Fudge shop in Newport, Rhode Island. You said, hey, hey, that guy looks interesting. <laughs> uh, and it turns out that the guy in the fudge shop was the head of product for Goldman Sachs. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. So that's, not actually. We should be. That's we should, formidable. We should disclose fully that Goldman Sachs is one of our clients. And yes. we don't actually. We have a very clear policy of not advertising, you know, with the content of this show and not right. sort of do this isn't part of client service, but this but turned dude, out, if you're going to name drop, yo. Yeah, this is a smart person. His name is Oren Moore. Oren, welcome. Hi, thank you. Where do you even start? So first of all, um, why is Oren here? <laughs> That's, I think. Well, I think you can answer that. Well, I did the thing where you go into incognito and then go to LinkedIn because I don't want the other person to know that I looked at them on LinkedIn, which I don't know if that even works. I think it works. This is the wrong place to ask. All right. I think they need to and pay I said, something. Let me, yeah. I think you have to pay something. I think that's yeah. right. Uh, I, and I looked up Orin. I said, this is an interesting person. We had a great couple of meetings. And uh, his, his resume was fascinating. And... Uh, uh, we're going to get into it, and then we're going to get into a particular part of the world on the web that's talked about, and it really is a is a big puzzle today. Well, I think it's worth noting we talk a lot about product, right? Like shipping product and the kind of building products and platforms and so on. And if you were to look at someone's LinkedIn profile and be like, "Well, that's the real deal," 
That's yeah. a real product person. This is someone who's been through, went, uh, spent a lot of time at Google, other places as well. So, Oren, tell us a little bit. So you're a head of product at Goldman Sachs. What do you do all day? So I've uh, been a, at Goldman for seven months, so I can't claim to be a veteran of the company. Uh, Goldman is going through, like many other companies, through a, a, a transformation to become a more uh, product-oriented company using technology not just to solve problems, but to also service clients. Um, and that is a big mindset change for a lot of people in a company that had, that's been around for a hun- over, over 150 years and needs to now become uh, uh, modernized in, in many ways. So what we do is look at all the existing services and the way uh, financial products are being communicated, distributed, and serviced with various types of clients and make sure that we build the right type of experience to those clients. Some of them are very sophisticated. Some of them are uh, uh, less sophisticated. uh, And we have to make sure that they get the right level of transparency and service through technology. So what what kind of things do you build? Uh, Just an example. We're building a product. It's a a way for clients to trade directly through Goldman Sachs. So uh, clients who want to trade FX, that's... uh, foreign exchange. They want to convert dollars to euros or yen or any other currency, giving them a real-time view of prices, letting them uh, enter sophisticated types of sophisticated ways of, of uh, transacting between currencies. And this is not when you just go into a bank and convert money before your vacation. This could be large sums of money and you can move the market by doing certain things. So there's, there's a level of sophistication in just uh, giving that level of transparency and being able to service that without without creating any damage along the way, so it's it's not tr- as trivial as it sounds. There is a lot of a lot of uh, logic behind transacting at the types of sophistication and, and uh, requirements that our clients have. But it, at the end, it's sort of the regular big hard software problem, right? Like you you're building a tool that people will use every day. Yeah, it, look, it's. You know, like like everything in in today's world, software can solve it. I, mm-hmm. I think this has the unique attributes of not just being a, a product challenge in terms of uh, workflow and client services and and all the things we we uh, come to expect now with any digital product. But there's also another level of sophistication when it comes to financial products. Those tend to be highly regulated. They have a lot of complexity. They have their set of, set of requirements in terms of what to show and when, and addressing all these requirements and constraints while while still maintaining a great client experience is a special challenge. And so as head of product, you're managing the team that's building these things. Like, what do you do? Uh, I manage a team of product managers, uh, great people who have domain knowledge in the financial products area, but also usually were developers in the past or at least have a computer science background and understand software development to a large extent and can think through both the financial product aspects of what we deliver and the product experience that our clients will have. So let's rewind and take you out of university. <laughs> and you land where? So that's, you know, that goes back a few years now. Um, I am originally from Israel, where everyone has to go to the military. Um, spent a few years serving in the military. I was a student and a soldier at the same time. And then I spent a few more years doing tech R&D uh, for the Israeli military. 
after that, I started a company called PrimeSense. Uh, you, you're probably familiar with the technology that PrimeSense developed in uh, the Microsoft Kinect. It's a 3D camera and gesture recognition. Right. I, um, I snowboarded in my house <laughs> using a Microsoft you, you Kinect. You can fly, you can pet animals, I've, you can I've, fight dragons. I tried, a, I tried an exercise one, and it didn't work well. Regardless. Anyway, uh, <laughs> clearly I see the dotted line to Goldman Sachs. The fact that you've gone from Microsoft Connect to Goldman Sachs, I think is deeply important. But we're I had not a few gonna, stops along the way. Let's take a, a few steps. steps right, All right, right, so there's got to be something else in between. All right, so that became the Microsoft, which is a, that's an achievement. I mean, that was, a, at the time, really cool tech. We, we had a lot of fun working on it, and it, it's, uh, it's, I think, one of those rare technologies that people actually called magical, which sure. I still remember and makes me happy till today because it's, it's, it's rare to it's do great. something that people yeah. that have such an emotional reaction with people. That was a great experience, and that experience also taught me that I know nothing about how business is run. Ooh. I knew a lot about technology, and I knew about, uh, about coding, but I had no idea uh, the experience of raising money, starting a company, manage, scaling it up, managing people taught me that I need to uh, uh, really expand my, my business education, which is why I uh, went to Harvard Business School to get an MBA. Okay. Um, sure, natural next step. You know, yeah. you're just like, I don't really know how this all works. I'm done with snowboarding in mm. my living room. Anyway, enough making fun. Okay, so <laughs> HBS, nice place, good school. Good school, uh, good people. Made friends. Not good weather. No. Um, Not good weather. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and after that, I again really wanted to understand how you know finance works. I ended up working for a family office, doing investments for three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they we should explain to listeners what a family office is. It's a thing you might know about in New York City, but not know. Yeah, elsewhere. you want to give a quick one. Sure. So, definition. so some families uh, have the uh, amount of wealth that requires someone to um, help them manage it. We, we should all have that fortunate problem, but. Uh, family office is uh, basically an investment company, usually a small one, that helps uh, wealthy families uh, allocate their funds in a in a smart way for next generations. Right. So uh, it's we'll, large enough. The funds are are significant enough that it deserves a set of people that are thinking about investments. Yeah. And the th- like. there, there's a point where where you know the bank is is you know you want more handholding, attention, and you want more attention, yeah, and sure. thought. About sure. what you're doing, you know, there's actually a. I, I, we'll find the Wikipedia page and put it up with the podcast. But like the Rockefellers actually have, there's like a floor or an office in Rockefeller Center, and it's known by the number. It's like like Room 801 or something like that. And it's the family office. It's, it is the legendary Rockefeller funds are all managed there. Got it. Okay, so a right, little so time in a family. You, so HBS, you get your business chops and got my new, pretty good yeah, training. And then very, very fortunate to have had an, a, a chance to also learn about actual investing in a, in a real investing uh, environment. I started there because they wanted to do tech investing. And this was uh, 2010, the wonderful years where tech started, the uh, more uh, early stage investing really started to bloom and a lot of things were happening. But the type of uh, investment DNA uh, was very much towards things that are less risky. Sure. Uh, so I, I found myself doing a lot of distressed real estate, mm-hmm. which, by the way, in 2010 was... was uh, uh, there, there's plenty of it. it. There was a lot of it, <laughs> and it, the, the type of... 
and it was as adventurous as doing startups today. So that that I did that for a while, and that uh, as that started winding down, I realized that I miss technology and I miss doing things that are innovative. Right, your average billionaire grandpa doesn't want you to throw your money at a machine learning toaster startup. Well, isn't? you know, some of them, I think it's, some of them are, some of them less so. Some mm-hmm. of them have a, an allocation, but it's it's definitely for, for, for some folks, it's definitely a stretch mm-hmm. to, to invest in something that is, all the value is in a future prospect of someone's idea and execution and not in, in some value that you can underwrite. Put sure. a finger like on. Like real estate. Sure, sure. Well, rich people have done very well with real estate. I, I hear, I hear it's a good thing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you get that, if you're looking at that hundred-year time horizon, it get that skyscraper. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, family office three years. Then, then, uh, then, uh, going back to technology, I was uh, contemplating between starting my own thing and uh, or working for a big company, and I ended up after playing around for a few months with my own idea, I decided to work uh, for a big company. Uh, and started to work as a product manager at Google. Okay. Um, and this is 2010-ish? This is to 13. 13. Okay. So Google is a m- very big company. Well, Google what? is a big, well-known company. Right? Very what did big Google well-known. make of your, your private wealth period? Like, I can see them being like, oh, great, the guy from the Connect. I, Come I'm on. pretty sure I confused them in the interview <laughs> process. I, I, I spoke fluent technology, and what I did in, in my startup and in the Israeli military is, is pretty much equivalent to product management work. Sure. You know, they saw that I knew what I was talking about, but the, the investment chapter is, is, uh, is definitely an outlier on, that, uh, sure. on my CV at that point. Okay, so uh, I'm going to guess there are about forty or fifty thousand product managers at Google. No, actually, not so. All of today, Google is seventy five thousand. At the time, it was less than half. Uh, Google grew a lot in the last thirty thousand, around thirty thirty five thousand total. Right, right. Yeah. And they're all engineers. Like everyone at Google is a software engineer by uh, title, right? That is a common misconception. Oh, please, uh, please Google, correct me. Google is about today. Google is about fifty fifty. Okay. Uh, product managers are considered engineers. Okay. You have about 50% of the organization uh, of actual engineers, product managers. Uh, and then you have salespeople and legal and support. And you have all the other functions that work wow. alongside. That's a big support side. Was your, side. Well, I mean, it's it's Google. Was your title product manager or was it something else? No, joined as a product manager. Product manager. Okay. And Progressed my career there as a product manager. And were you here in New York City or out? Yeah, in I joined. View I joined. Okay. Uh, I joined in New York City. Uh, they have a wonderful office in Chelsea. It's vast. Every time uh, I've gone into it, I have gone in the wrong entrance, and then I'm a half hour late because it's so big. It's, yeah, that's same part here. of the I, test. Part of the I, test. That's why I failed the test. I many fail times. it all. I fail that's it over I, and over again. That's why I work at Postlight instead of at Google. <laughs> uh, it's such a big building that people get around by scooter. Um, I've seen that happen there. So uh, yeah. they still have it. I think it's it's uh, they're starting to say maybe you should you guys shouldn't take the scooter. There Somebody were a few, got smashed. Some, into some a wall. people no, the, had some accidents. The last time I was there it was so crowded that you there was no way to do that. You can't yeah. move around. Um, okay, so Google, nice little company, another little startup. And uh, what are you doing there? So I, I landed in in a platform called DoubleClick. It's an online advertising platform. Uh, it's a it's a business that Google acquired a few years back in two thousand and eight. And it was pretty big at the time, but it grew to be even more successful with Google in the last few years uh, as the main online, uh, uh, third-party online platform 
for advertisers and publishers. I mean, right, for our listeners, when people say that Google is an advertising company, what they're talking about is DoubleClick. Like, that's the platform, right? Well, they have, they ha Google has a few platforms. Like, platform is a big word in Google. They, they have a few of them. They have, uh, they, there is a, first of all, fundamental distinction between the search engine and display. So mm -hmm. when you think about online advertising, you have the search world where people advertise alongside keywords that people search, you know, uh, when people search for things, uh, the results have ads embedded so in I, them. So I search for coffee, and then that text ad pops up and says, best coffee in the world. Exactly, okay. right. And then the other side is display network, mm -hmm. which is very similar to what you see in billboards on the streets, only on uh, websites. You you go on a website, and you have advertisements for shoes and That's services. 300 by 250 rectangle. The rectangles, the full pages, the uh, pop-ups, all types of uh, wonderful creations. Uh, so those all originated at Google. I mean, the ads don't, but they, so, they, they are kind of hosted by Google. Yeah. So okay. even here, another distinction is there's something called GDN, Google Display Network. Those are properties where people who have a website, let's say you, you have uh, uh, a blog, and you carve out a piece of, that, of the page and say, Google, please manage that for me, manage that on my behalf. That is something that then Google can control and serve against. That's one type. That's the GDN. Another type is when Google acts as a third party. That's where DoubleClick comes into play. When the New York Times, the New York Times is not going to carve a piece of the website and say, Google, it's yours now. They're going to put a piece of the website and say, I will have a contract with Nike as an advertiser. I know we don't do advertisements, but I'm giving a few examples. Mm -hmm. But Nike doesn't want to now go around and make sure that the right ads on the New York Times are served for, for males in the New York area um, between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. And a different ad is served between 8 p.m. and midnight. Right. They make shoes. They make shoes. And they don't want to worry about aggregating all the advertising data. They don't want to worry about the slingshots. They just serving the ad to its destination, making sure that it happened, making sure that some quality aspects are met. That's why they get a third party, like DoubleClick. They upload their ads. They say they go. can they, they can say go. And, they're, and, and in this world, there are two, two forms of go. There's one called uh, reservation, and the other one is called programmatic. I, I don't want to get too technical, but reservation is when you have a contract. The example with the New York Times and Nike. Two parties. They've agreed. They, have, they agreed. And now you just need to serve that contract. The parameters of the contract are placed into Google, into uh, DoubleClick, alongside the ads, and then DoubleClick just does the execution. Executes and takes a little cut. Takes, charges a fee for serving and, and, uh, and adds a lot of value through measuring demographics, measuring viewability. We'll, we'll perhaps talk about what these terms mean. And the other side is called programmatic. That's where you don't have a contract. You have a an aggregator of a lot of small sources of traffic. So blogs, small websites, websites that don't want to, are not big enough to manage their, uh, manage through reservations and, and actually sign contracts. Nike's never going to call them up. No one's going to call them up. Okay. That's, no one's going to call, you know, uh, some, someone's yeah. blog and, uh, you know, MyCoolSneakers.com. Exactly, exactly. So uh, DoubleClick, or uh, that's an entire ecosystem of companies that have exchanges, and DoubleClick will buy on behalf of the user. 
they will look at exchanges, they will look at, we call it inventory. Inventory is basically when you go on a website and ads load, that takes a few milliseconds, what you're, the, the act of loading the ads, you're, you're creating an impression mm-hmm. and your attributes, so Google knows through your cookie profile that you are likely a male and they're connecting from the New York area, they will go to an, uh, the, your impression will go to an exchange and they will say, I have a male, he's at this age group, uh, and by the way, he's really into sneakers. Who wants to bid on him? And then, you know, a coffee company will bid something, but Nike will bid higher because sure. they, you're, you're their target market. So it's a marketplace. It's a marketplace. It happens in real time. And then once the bid is won, DoubleClick is responsible for... So DoubleClick is responsible for the bid, determining the right price to bid. And if, uh, if they get it, they will serve the ad and they will measure a lot of things around the interaction around the ad. If people clicked on it, if people engaged with it, was it ever seen? What is it, was it ever displayed on the screen? What type of content is on the page? That's where issues like brand safety may come up. So that's What's quite interesting is a lot of people don't know about the insights that Google ha- <coughs> Google and others have just by you browsing the web. Like, you know, they say, well, what? I mean, I went to a shoe site and, a, and I went to a couple of news sites and I, I saw a funny YouTube video. They don't know I'm male, but the insights are probably most people sell short how incredibly uh, powerful the insights are into, you know, location and also interests, right? Because you're going to particular sites right. and, and the like, which that's its own conversation. Um, now, you mentioned brand safety, what does brand safety mean? Uh, brand safety started as a... So as, as online advertising grew and people started to buy inventory or impressions on various properties and websites, there was a concern that I don't know where I'm getting myself into. So you have two sides of the equation. You have the publisher, so the sneakers blog, and that says, I don't want inappropriate ads. I don't want ads of content that doesn't fit my brand image on my website. That's one side. The other side is from the advertisers. The advertisers say, I don't want to be against, I don't want to be my my content, my brand to be displayed against inappropriate content. And it started mainly with a concern of having ads on porn websites. That's where kind of the sure. original uh, requirement came from. Uh, you know, Disney does not want to be displayed against porn sites. That's the kind of extreme example. Um, and the, there was a small ecosystem of companies that came to serve that need of advertisers. And they had different names. Brand safety came, uh, I think, later on at the beginning. The category came to be known as ver- uh, verification tools. If you think about online advertising in today's world, I always think about it as the analogy to what the stock market was in the 19th century. A lot of the things that are clear today in the stock market, a certain criteria for how to uh, be transparent around what you're selling, how to conduct exchanges, the regulation around it, and the penalties if you deviate from those things are all very clear in the financial industry. They're not as clear in the online uh, industry yet, online advertising industry. So in the 19th century, you could issue more stocks and you can do insider trading, and it was buyer beware mentality. It just wasn't policed. And today, I think... uh, 
it's getting better, but the online age, uh, online advertising industry grew up with that mentality of buyer beware. And then as the industry matures, uh, then the quality and the standards are increasing with it. Uh, and brand safety and that uh, area of, of verification tools are at the core of what is what does it mean to have a good ad? Well, and I think it's worth noting here, right? Like Google is kind of a nation state, and these are not small accounts at this point. You're talking tens, hundreds, millions, billions of dollars flowing through the system. And so with that, when the when the purchaser says, I want accountability, that's a tremendous risk unless you have a good answer. Right. And and we, look, we saw, we, we saw in the last few months uh, when some issues around um, – Fake news and 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 hate content became more of a became a topic. Advertisers became much more aware of of the risk they bear when they advertise in certain channels, and that definitely creates a huge in financial incentive for companies, including Google, to make sure that they have quality assurances for advertisers. And this is a problem is that's at a scale where you can't just call your customer rep. To handle it in a reactive way, right? I mean, it's, it's right. So th- it's funny. The industry started in in exactly that way. The industry started by manually uh, creating blacklists. People would sit and say, "I don't want to be on that site and on that site," and create a list of websites. And as you were bidding on inventory, or as you were serving, the there was the ability to block that and not serve an ad or not bid on an ad in the first place, which is the ideal scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the scale exploded, uh, you couldn't have people just looking manually at, at websites and say, too many. this is good for me, this is not good for me. Yeah. And machine learning algorithms started to uh, uh, be introduced into that space, looking at websites before an ad is displayed and categorizing that. Uh, there are a few companies that do that. Google has an internal product that is fantastic at looking at a website and determining what type of content is on that website. And that works. That works great when you're talking about uh, uh, a pornography or suggestive or violence or political or religion. There are t- certain types of categories that are easy, relatively, in today's technology, relatively easy to uh, detect. So what's effectively happening here is Google's machines are reading over the website first and making sure that it fits a certain set, like it doesn't doesn't so, violate what the client wanted. So if the client, the client said, I wants. don't want religion, yeah. every website that was categorized as religion right. is not going to have ads from that specific advertiser on it. So that's an interesting example because we've been talking so far about offensive sites like violent, promote violence and pornography. But religion, like I don't really want to take sides here. I just don't want to be on anything that has to do with religion. Yeah, some, and, and it has no sides. It's just about the content. It's yeah, about the type of content. Sure. So, you know, what's interesting here, too, is that the earliest days of the web, right, it was all about like Yahoo started as a categorization system for putting websites into a great big index. And that that didn't scale. Very quickly, it turned out that you couldn't actually categorize every website ever. And there have been lots of attempts to sort of organize things or get people to self-organize. There was the big semantic web effort and things like that, like taxonomies would emerge. And what we're finding here is that driven by the needs of the advertiser, a huge classification effort has happened. And Google's able to point at something and say with some, I'm assuming, like some statistically valid confidence what a site or what a page is about. Correct. And, and and it works in certain areas, right? So it works when you have, when you want to look at 
pornography or violence. But it's it gets harder as you want to get more specific. So violence, for example, is fantastic when you're watching a James Bond trailer. Sure. But it's horrible when you're watching uh, an ISIS execution or other brutal examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now teaching an algorithm to say this type of violence is, a fu- is okay, but this type of violence is horrible. Very tricky. Yeah. So that's where you know, the challenges lie now. So how do you even begin to address a problem like that? What are, what are, you, what are your building blocks and components? Um, I mean, machine learning in a very broad way. So right? machine, machine learning is the tool, but you, you, you actually do have a pretty massive manual effort here in taking uh, linguists in different languages to manually create the training sets in different languages. And by the way, that's not just a language barrier thing. It's also a cultural thing. What is in one culture considered suggestive or erotic what might be in, in another culture totally acceptable. Sure. And so those nuances are captured through massive training sets that have to be continuously updated. Um, and then machine learning, it's a lot a huge, of machine learning. It's a huge, huge endeavor. It's a huge, huge I mean, and expensive Google endeavor. Does Google have thousands of people offshore that just focus on these things? Or how does... I can't tell you the number, but it's a, it's, it's, massive. it's a massive and expensive. Actually, all of the big internet companies, I don't know about Apple necessarily, but like Facebook does, any major content-driven search-powered play kind of has to deal with this stuff. I think it starts with um, basic standards around pornography and violent pornography and like we have to keep this stuff off the platform. But then over time, it becomes a tool for connecting the advertiser to the person they want or assisting people in finding content sure. and so on. And generally quality, we, we use brand safety, but the general idea of quality of ads is, is, is not just brand safety. Uh, do you? We all know the website that you land on a page, and the way the page is swamped with ads, sure. tiny ads, and it's not a good experience for the user. It's not a good experience for the advertiser. It's horrible for everyone, but someone is making money in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a set determining a set of qualities, not just about the type of content, but also around the density of ads, around where the ads are placed on a page. For many uh, many publishers found that if they stuff the bottom of the page with ads, they get paid for it because so nobody scrolls down there. But they are nobody they're scrolls down, okay. but they still get paid for someone placing an ad. But if you add a measure of viewability, which is a made-up word used in the in the online advertising industry for just answering the simple question: Was th- was this ad ever presented on a screen? Mm-hmm. If you know that it was on the screen, someone scrolled all the way down and had that on the screen for at least a second. Okay. You're already cutting off a huge amount of all of the online inventory. We're talking about 50% of online ads. So that was a bad day when the viewability metric showed up. Well, it's a good day for for (laughs) consumers. Yes. Okay. So wait, this this went down? Like they added so viewability? So I think the, the industry is in the process of adopting that. And even okay, so there's resistance world, around this because obviously there's dollars involved. There are and, dollars involved. People are used to getting paid for something and that's not going to continue. Uh, I think it's clear for everyone that that's the direction the industry is going. But even in that direction, uh, the criteria around what viewability is are, again, there's no governing body for the industry. So right. different companies invent their own set of uh, criteria for what is a viewable impression. So this there, is still in flux. This is still being discussed yeah, and there, negotiated. Yeah, there, 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 there is, there is a, a consortium of companies and, and they have a, a standard. But some advertisers 
Uh, some of the major ones in the industry came and said, we're not accepting this type of criteria. We don't want one second. We want five seconds. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you have companies that are effectively publishers like Facebook who say, when you look at a web at Facebook, viewability for video is three seconds. So if you scroll slowly and a video starts playing, play. someone all... pays for it, even if you're not watching the ad, sure. the fact that it was on the screen for three seconds. Sure. And that's fine. That's and and YouTube has a different business model with TrueView, where if you don't skip the ad, the ad counts, which is another way of dealing with viewability issues. If you don't skip it, like usually it's the five second countdown. You have the five seconds. If you skipped it in the five seconds, there's no transaction. No one pays. No, but wait, you can't skip it. No, sorry, you have, but then you can skip. If you skip in a certain window of time that no one, the advertiser doesn't pay, but beyond that, the advertiser needs to pay. So if you stay an extra three seconds, I don't, I I, I don't remember the exact number. I mean, this is sport, right? Like this is essentially a game where there's a lot at stake, right? There's a lot of dollars involved and you have these different actors with different interests that are, are playing around with us essentially. And I think what's interesting here is the lack of regulation. Usually this is where some governing body, whether it be government or some commission or something, steps in because that governing body is not tied to commercial interests. Right. So right? The, the, the industry does have an entity. I'm not even sure how, like, what's the legal stance of that entity that, that created a recommendation for, for standards. But it's, but it's not enforced. It's, it, there's, no, there's no teeth behind it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's like international courts. <laughs> well, it's a standard. Right, like it's, it's a standard. A, everyone, yeah, but that's, that's no, no. But nonsense. that doesn't. Ha- there's no legal force behind it. I think you know. Exactly. In, the, in this case, I think the the, the commercial forces are going to uh, push towards uh, convergence on standards towards something that's going to be widely Agreed accepted. Upon and yeah. Okay. Um, so you know, I, I agree that sometimes a regulator are a good thing. Maybe in this case, it's going to happen by by sheer market forces. Yeah. We'll we'll wait and see. Yeah. Well, we should talk about another phenomenon that's kind of related to this, which is relevant recently, and that's sort of these protest movements that kick in where someone doesn't like the content of a site. Or oh, a you know, there's, a, there's one called Sleeping Giants, which is they're very opposed to Breitbart. And so what they've been doing is asking people to tweet about advertisers they see on Breitbart who probably don't want to be there, uh, big auto brands, things like that. And It's like, Toyota, why are you next to this horrible headline? Well, that's actually something that's simple – that's simple to solve because you can still use a blacklist. You can still say this particular URL or website is something yeah. I don't want to be on ever. And yeah. that's just going to be blocked. Yeah. So what they're doing as an activist organization is teaching people how to get on. To, like, no one knows where their ads are going, you know, and, and so like teaching people how to get on that blacklist or to create that blacklist for themselves. You know, there's a, it's a kind of abstract thing, but I want to bring it back a little bit. So here's this big platform, DoubleClick, and sort of the overall Google ad platform. You are a product manager, but your actual job is to introduce friction into this process so that not everyone can have every ad appear on every website. Like you are actually coming in here and saying like, wait, we're going to create some, uh, there's going to be some gateways, some digital gateways. What's it like being the product manager of something that slows the whole system down? Um, uh, Good point. Generally, when when you when you introduce constraints to a system, people you know that could create friction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Google has done an amazing job at at really understanding that the quality of the uh, advertiser and the quality of the experience of the end user are critical, 
and mm. to be willing to that's a get long that game money. view right because the game. actions you're doing are going to actually in the near term equal less money right it, it, it's 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 on, on viewability it's on brand safety it's on fraud fraud is massive in online advertising and google just every time fraud is detected um it's removed and people don't pay for it which is again you, you're losing money on the short term sure but you're doing the right thing for the long term. I, I, you know, not every company has the po- deep pockets and patience to to take that sure. approach. But, but they un- they see long they see long term value. Yeah, um, and that's you know that's what's at stake. Well, and they're doing okay. You know, if they <laughs> if they take a little out of there, yeah, they're still going to be able to make it make it fine the next yeah. year. Well, I think they I think they also recognize themselves as an important actor, not just as oh we're a company. Like Google is a significant part of the piping here. Like that's that's real. And I think probably also they are very closely scrutinized as an organization well, it's that better can be for penalized. Them. It's better for them to get to it before the government does, without exactly, a doubt. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So. I mean, that's just giant orgs at that scale. That's, the kind, that's one of the motivations is right. that, you know, I don't want antitrust and I don't want the FCC and I don't, like, I want to just get my job done. Right. And, uh, you know, if they do it, they get to get stand up and say, because we care so much about the integrity of your brand. They're getting ahead of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes a lot of business sense when you're at that scale to just be like incredibly paranoid, right? Sure. Sure. Okay. So you, so you're able to, you were shipping these sort of like almost gateways or filters in the whole system. Yeah. Okay. So, so that, you know, just defining, and again, that goes to the, to the part where people are not aware of all the problems that even, even sophisticated advertisers don't. You know, they think a lot about the demographics and they think a lot about their campaigns, but the amount of thought given to exposure to fraud when you buy on different types of exchanges, the exposure to low quality viewability, the exposure to brand issues, like all that is something that requires education and training alongside the technological solutions. So thinking through the product, not just from, you know, the technology, but through how do we get this out there? How do we uh, how do we uh, get the word out through white papers and attending conferences and meeting with big clients and explaining that uh, and having and building easy to use products? All that together is you know they, they, that entire package is the role of the product manager, not just defining the technology. So every every time I view an ad, it's the outcome. First of all, it's the direct outcome of millions of lines of executing code all across the internet. Just for me to see that rectangle on the screen. The, the amount, the amount of logic that's behind an ad that pops on your screen is incredible. And it's simultaneously the product of a vast amount of communication between clients and ad creators and publishers and Google. A- an entire ecosystem of people who uh, who profile users, mm-hmm. not necessarily Google. There are third party companies that do that. An exchange that connects sellers and buyers. Uh, a bidding system. Uh, a serving system, and then behind the scenes, a reporting system that collects the data measured out of your page and aggregates the data for the advertiser. And and all of that for that one in a thousand chance that just, I'm going to click. Just so uh, <laughs> a donut can roll across the bottom of my article. That's exactly right. Um, Makes you appreciate the donut. I get, I'm going to stop <laughs> for a minute and say, wow. But you know what just happened as we had this conversation is it made far more sense to me why Oren is at Goldman Sachs. It's an economy. He was an actor that had influence over an economy. The, the analogies between the online advertising 
uh, world and the financial world are are abundant. Uh, you know, yeah. starting from uh, an exchange through the type of tra- through transactions. Sure. Through, uh, there are fundamental differences. Yeah. Ads are are perishable inventory. If you don't buy an ad, it goes away. Yeah. You or you know, as you load the page, if no one bids, that's you know, it's lost. It's gone. Yeah. And a stock is gonna just remain there. Sure. Or the pile it, of gold or whatever people are buying. I think you touched on it before, which is it's like early days. It's like a 19th century economy. Yeah. Uh, it's there's not a lot of regulation yet. It's sort of the Wild West. The actors are trying to you know exert influence to protect their own interests. To be clear, we're talking about advertising here, not Goldman Sachs. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Let's, let's yes. No. Not like a 19th yes. century. Yeah. Enjoyed Goldman as a client. <laughs> Uh, yes, not 19th century. Uh, uh, yeah, economy. I think I think there's a lot of uh, truth to that analogy as well. There's a the the uh, a buyer beware and and the level of of sophistication that users need to have to protect themselves. Yeah. is not trivial uh, in online advertising. Sure, um, and uh, as the industry matures, that will that will change. Arn, one sentence answer. What do you think of ad blockers? Wonderful wake up call. That's a great answer. Pretty great answer. That's a great answer. Or if people want to get in touch with you, uh, what do they do? Uh, They are very welcome to. We're we're building a big organization, an exciting organization, trying to solve big problems that are that have a huge impact on the world. And this is not an exaggeration. We're trying to make resource allocation and investment decisions better for society, companies, uh, countries, and individuals. It's a major, major task. And we're looking for people who find that an intriguing problem on the product management side, on the engineering side, uh, designers, anyone who wants to be inter- who wants to take part in that adventure. We want you to join us. That was fascinating. V- a lot of interesting insights. It's here. like just watching lots of aircraft carriers moving around in a circle. Just big... Big systems, yeah, that go very deep. He's a smart, smart fella. He's pretty bright. Seems <laughs> seems to have learned a few things along the way. Yeah. Um, so look, you know, here we are at, at Track Changes. Sometimes we have the ACLU. Sometimes we have Google and, and Goldman Sachs. That's the beauty of Track Changes. That's why I love being in an agency in New York City. Because You're going to see it all. You get to see the whole world. You're going to see it all. So listen, uh, Rich. My name is Paul Ford. I'm the co-founder of Postlight. You're Rich Ziotti, the other co-founder of Postlight. Thanks, Paul. What do people do when they want to get in touch? Uh, hello at postlight.com. Just send uh, that email. You got a question you want us to answer on the show. You want you have thoughts, you have we, commentary. We welcome criticism. We like to talk to you. Yeah, uh, whatever you so need. So just reach out about anything. And give us five stars on iTunes if, if you're just kind of sitting around the house without a lot else to do. Uh, or even if you are kind of busy, go ahead, go upstairs, turn on that uh, old iMac and, and give us five stars. That Dell XPS 1300. Exactly. So um, hello at postlight.com and goodbye to everybody else. We'll see you next week. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.